0: Well, this morning we will conclude our series through the book of Zephaniah. Uh, and as we said when we began this series, it's, it's really not, in some ways, not a book for the faint of heart. There are, uh, I think I added it up correctly, there are 53 verses in the book. About 15 of them say something that's not exclusively about judgment. So, nice little balance there. Um, The good news for us this morning is that uh, the verses under our consideration, uh, there are about seven of those 15, fall in our text this morning. So that's good. Um, What we've seen over and over again is that um, God had threatened Judah and the entire world with judgment. Because of mankind's rebellion against God and his law, judgment was coming. That's the message. for the most part, last week we saw Zephaniah's final depiction of judgment in chapter 3, verse 8. God said he would assemble the nations together and he would pour out his indignation upon them. For the fire of his jealousy uh, would be in all the earth and all the earth would be consumed. And so you know, the message that we get is that judgment is coming against the world of unbelief. But we also have seen in several different places uh, that there is a way to be hidden from this judgment, from this anger. Um, we saw in really two main places in chapter 2 that there are uh, we must seek refuge in the Lord. Those who seek refuge in Him, uh, who turn to Him in humility, will find a hiding place from His wrath. And uh, not to put the cart before the horse here, but the New Testament tells us that the only way to find refuge in God is to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the God-man who lived a perfect life, he, He was completely sinless in every thought, word, and deed. He did not fail to uphold a single one of God's good commands. And yet, even though His perfect righteousness earned Him nothing but favor and peace with God, We know that He was forsaken by God on the cross. This willing exchange that He made. He willingly endured this so that through faith in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that in Him we might be saved. This is the Gospel. On Him was placed the sin of all who would believe, and for those who believe on us is placed the righteousness of Christ. And this gives us Peace with God. Our text this morning looks toward a day in which this peace is uh, is most fully realized. God and man live together in a fully conscious enjoyment of this peace. Because this day that we're going to read about in verses 14 to 20 of chapter 3 has been realized in the first coming of Christ. We have peace with God through faith in Jesus. And yet it awaits a fuller fulfillment in the second coming when we perfectly enjoy that peace. Christ came once and established peace between man and God. He will come once again and consummate it. And so like we've said, the book of Zephaniah has been like a very long and dark night. But last week we saw the sun begin to break out over the horizon. And today... We come to high noon. And so we're going to look at Zephaniah three, fourteen to twenty, and the sermon title is The King in Your Midst. And the key words for our worshipers in training are rejoice, renown, and restore. And uh, I want to read these verses before we dive in. I'm actually going to begin in verse nine, because that's that's really where, in some sense, where the shift takes place from judgment to blessing. So we're going to read nineteen through twenty and then uh, since we've already considered nine through thirteen, we'll just be looking at fourteen to twenty today. He says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O Israel! Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem! The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty One who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that the lord we can go home well, as we consider this marvelous text i want to do so under two headings first we're going to see the command the call the invitation to rejoice in verse 14 and then in 15 to 20 we will see uh, several reasons that god gives us to rejoice So, first in verse 14, we see the invitation extended to Jerusalem and her children to rejoice. And this is really quite uh, perhaps a strange, but a relieving word given all that we've heard so far. You know, most of the commands have been pretty dark. We see in chapter 1, verse 7, the command to be silent before judgment, to wail in 1 verse 11, in chapter 2 verse 1, to gather together shameless nation. We're told to seek the Lord in order to be hidden from his anger in 2 verse 3. There's a woe pronounced upon the seacoast in 2 verse 5. In chapter 3 verse 1, there's a woe proclaimed over Jerusalem. And then in chapter 3 verse 8, wait for me to pour out my anger. So this is a quite a relief, a command to rejoice. An invitation not to mourn or to wail or to weep or to wait for judgment, but to rejoice. And not just kind of rejoice, not just to sort of feel a little giddy in your heart, but there's, there's really no constraint that He places upon this rejoicing. Sing! Sing aloud! Shout! And exult with all your heart. We are invited n- not into a stoic, still, kind of cold religion. Christianity is not that there is a deep, fiery, and passionate joy that attends the good news of the gospel. And so God says, in the midst of all of this, He says to them, Rejoice. Well, what about the reasons that He gives to rejoice? Because so far, they've not seen much by way of a reason to rejoice. We, we began to see that in the end of uh, the, the sermon last week, in the 9 through 13. But what reasons does He give? Well, as we look at 15 through 20, um, I want to I break it up into, into two parts. We'll look at verses 15 to 17, and we'll see two things there. We're going to see that God promises pardon. And he promises communion. In 18 through 20, we'll see two things there. He promises deliverance and glory. So four things we'll kind of look at in two parts. Pardon, communion, deliverance, and glory. Those are the four reasons God gives us here to rejoice. So pardon and communion first in verses 15 to 17. And we'll consider uh, the pardon extended. In verse 15, we read that God has taken away the judgments against Judah, and he's cleared away their enemies. Judah was guilty. Judah deserved to be judged. Judah deserved to be exiled and cast away from the presence of God. But this is not the final word against her. What she deserves and the judgment that that would bring. God promises to take away her judgments. But it's interesting. Verse 15, the first part Is written in the past tense. I have taken, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. That's past tense. But if you notice the other reasons given that we will consider, they are not in the past tense. A few of them are in the present, several of them are in the future. The king is in your midst. The Lord is a mighty one who will save. There's present tense. There's some future tense. Some other future tenses. He says He will rejoice over them. He will quiet them by His love. He says, I will gather those who mourn. I will deal with your oppressors. I will bring you in. I will make your praise renowned in all the earth. And so, why three different tenses? Well, I think it's because we're meant to see a a progression of... Of of blessing here, the first part uh, of verse fifteen, the, the part about clearing away judgments, is in the past tense, which leads to present tense language of God dwelling in their midst, in verses sixteen and seventeen, and then flowing out of that communion, there is a future tense description of further blessings enjoyed by God's people. In other words, it demonstrates the fact that legal pardon from our sins is essential and foundational for all the other blessings of salvation. The only way we can hope to experience any communion with God is if the judgments against us have been taken away. The only way we can have any hope of being delivered by God from sorrow and suffering is if we have been delivered from the penalty our sins deserved by a merciful pardon from the Sovereign Lord. The only way we have any hope of honor being bestowed upon us By the King of the world is if we have entered into right relationship with Him and so received His royal pardon. In other words, verse 15 is a picture of justification. Justification is a single judicial act whereby God, motivated by love, declares and constitutes sinners as righteous in His sight upon the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to them through the instrument of faith which unites the sinner to Christ and establishes peace between Him and God and produces good works in the believer's life. One passage that's helpful to illustrate this is Romans 5.1. It says that we have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of the Christian life. And so I think what we see here is that even the grammar of this passage is a way of highlighting the need for um, divine pardon in order for these other blessings to follow. Before all the other blessings can come upon Judah, they must be constituted as righteous before God and acquitted of their sins. So we see this pardon extended. And so we're called to rejoice for the pardon that we have. Well, second. This pardon makes, as we've said, communion with the king possible. Once God has cleared away the judgments against Judah, He can once again dwell among them. The second part of verse fifteen, the king can then come into their midst, and this is this dwelling. God dwelling with man is one of the most significant themes in all of the Bible. God will be our God; we will be His people. Perhaps, perhaps in fact, the main theme of the Bible. It's how the Bible ends. In Revelation 21 and 22, right? We get this picture of communion with God. In Revelation 21, John sees the the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and he hears a loud voice saying, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. This is what it's all about. This is where it's all heading. This is the great end for which Judah is saved, for which we are saved to once again live in the presence of God. This presence from which we were expelled when our parents sinned in Eden. And this is what He promises to His people here in Zephaniah. And listen to the description of this communion down in verse 17. We see again, repeated for emphasis, God will be in their midst. He is a mighty One who will save. Well, to what end? That He may rejoice over us with gladness. He may quiet us by His love. He will exalt over us with loud singing. God will rejoice over His people with gladness. God is not coldly indifferent to our salvation. It came at a great cost to Him. It cost Him His Son. And so it should be no surprise to us that He is thrilled to have a people that He has redeemed for Himself. Now, the last part of verse 17 is interesting. You kind of have this sandwich going on. You have, he will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. Now, the, the phrase in the middle, that he will quiet you by his love, is um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's actually some debate about how it should be translated. Exactly. Uh, some are, are happy with the way it's translated here in the, the ESV, or, or others like the, the NIV or the New King James. Uh, that He will quiet us by His love. But uh, some read the line, and they see that it's actually God who is quiet. So like, re- not read, when you read the Hebrew, it, uh, it seems like God is actually the one being quiet. And that's what I'm inclined to believe here. I'm inclined to agree with like, the King James that it's not us being quiet here, but God who is quiet what does that mean? Well, I think we're given here two pictures of extreme and utter satisfaction. In the middle of these two lines, you have the, uh, you've got the two lines on the one hand, the, the cookie part. If you have an Oreo, right? The, the cookie part, you've got God uh, rejoicing and singing and uh, being loud in His praise. But in the middle, you have... A quiet and satisfied contentment. One commentator puts it this way. He says, here, the warrior who is mighty to save rests in the satisfaction of his victory and the loving relationship that exists between him and his people. The war is over. John Calvin, he agrees, but he sees it in terms of divine condescension and accommodation. He says, God assumes the person of a mortal man because unless he stammers in this manner, he cannot sufficiently show us how much he loves us. As a man caresses his dear wife, so will God then quietly repose in thy love. So however we take it, whether God is the one who is silent here or whether we are, it's a picture of deep and intimate communion. God and man dwelling together in perfect and complete harmony such that no words are even necessary. Brothers and sisters, God is not indifferent toward you. If you struggle to think that God loves you, take a look at this text. If you are in Christ. God quietly rests in His love for you, and He rejoices over you with gladness, and He bursts into song over you. What we see also here, in uh, back up in verses fifteen and sixteen, the, the result of of this communion it says their fear is driven away; they will never again fear evil. God's presence drives away what they fear, and so it drives away their fear. Consider a a psalm like Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? He says, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Can you say that? Can you say with David, That even though you come to walk through the valley of the shadow of death that you don't fear any evil because God is with you? Is that the kind of communion you experience with God? Friends, it is what He offers to you now and what you will experience in full in the day to come. Well, So we are considering then the ground for our joy, right? These four things: pardon, communion, deliverance, and glory. We've considered the first two, in verses fifteen to seventeen. Well, let's look in eighteen to twenty, and we will see the deliverance that God determines for us, and the glory that is to be given. When we consider God's deliverance, uh, we see that there are uh, four types of bondage from which he will deliver us. He says he will gather those who mourn for the festival and remove their reproach. He will deal with their oppressors and he will save the lame and the outcast. So as I'm reading that, I'm seeing a deliverance from uh, emotional bondage, civil bondage, physical bondage in terms of sicknesses and social bondage. So we'll look at each of those four things. First, emotionally, God says to those who are broken and ruined, they shall be gathered and delivered. Those who mourn over the destruction wrought in their midst by their sins, they shall be brightened. They weep for the festivals lost in exile. They are brokenhearted for sin and sorrow and all the misery sin brings into the world. And this has echoes in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so let me ask, do you mourn? Are you weary with weeping for sin and the destruction that it brings in this world and in your life? Friends, there's a day coming when as John saw in Revelation 21, when it says God will be our God and we will be His people, right after that He will wipe away Every tear from our eyes when we look our Savior in the face. And so God promises deliverance from emotional bondage. Well, second, we we're promised deliverance from physical, uh, sorry, civil bondage. He, he says He will deal with their oppressors. Back up in verse 15, He says He will clear away their enemies. Though His people may suffer under the heavy hand of oppressive regimes for the time being, and some more than others, there is a day coming when all who have arrayed themselves against God and His people will be put to shame. This is why kings and leaders should be wise and warned now. They should kiss the sun lest He be angry. When the judge of all the earth comes to the reckoning, how shall He view those who use their might and their power which they only have at his command how shall he view them if they use their might and power to oppress kill and destroy those for whom he died you know we're really we're really beginning to see this kind of thing more and more in our own country unrighteous lawsuits unjust firings public ridicule harassment by governing officials if things don't change dramatically so for us, this may be just the beginning. Christians in the West very likely to face some particularly hard times in the days to come. And yet, in the end, God will deal with those who stand against us. I think here of the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7. When Stephen is being killed, he lifts up his eyes toward heaven and he he sees heaven opened, and Jesus is standing at God's right hand looking down upon him. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is standing in that passage? Every other reference that I I can think of that I could find uh, mentions Jesus sitting, right? After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he goes and sits at the right hand of God. We see this in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, where Jesus tells the high priest that He will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. In the Apostles' Creed, which we uh, recite here together every month, Jesus ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So why is Jesus standing when Stephen is stoned? Kevin DeYoung writes, He stood to receive Stephen's testimony and to be his advocate. He has stood that he might come forward to be the judge of those who will trample upon God's prophet. Jesus is rising from His throne to come to Stephen's defense and to judge his persecutors. Jesus rises to signal His judgment against those who would stone one of His brothers. And so is God indifferent toward you and your sufferings? Is He indifferent to the opposition you faced as one of His followers, even if it's not as drastic as being stoned? No, Jesus stands at your defense and is ready to judge those who array themselves against you for being one of His followers. He's ready to judge and there is a day coming when He will. A third deliverance we see in verse 19 is that He will deliver us from uh, physical bondage. And as I mentioned, what what I'm seeing here, what I'm meaning by that is that we'll be saved from physical ailments, bad backs, crippled legs, broken arms, bad nervous systems, cancer, heart attacks, dementia. God will one day deliver His people from every physical ailment from which we currently suffer. Does it hurt to run or walk? Does it hurt to sit or stand? Does it hurt to lie down? Does it hurt to breathe? Does it hurt because you're watching someone you love fade away to nothing? Does it hurt to eat? Does it it hurt? Whatever it is, whatever limitation you have, brother, sister, there is a day coming when the hurting will cease. Joni erickson Tata is the founder and CEO of Joni and Friends International Disability Center. She's an international advocate for people with disabilities. And uh, for her, her own story, a diving accident in 1967, left Joni, then just 17 years old, a quadriplegic in a wheelchair without the use of her hands. Several years ago, she was talking about uh, kneeling while praying, something which she bound to a wheelchair is obviously not able to do. And she said, now this is the thing about kneeling. It's, it's, not a break, it's not a make or break issue when it comes to praying. Obviously, God listens whether His people pray standing, sitting, or lying prostrate. Still, ninety-five verse, Psalm 95, verse 6 says, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So she asked, what's my point about kneeling? Only this, I wish I could do it. Being paralyzed, it's impossible for me to kneel in prayer. I remember one time being at a convention banquet when the speaker closed his message by asking everyone in the room to kneel for prayer. All 500 people pushed their chairs away from the table and got on their knees. All except me. She said, I sat there crying Oh, not because I felt awkward or sad that I was the only one in the entire banquet hall who was sitting up. No, I cried because as I looked around, I was struck with the beauty of seeing so many people bow in worship. I remember breathing a prayer, oh Lord Jesus, I can't wait for the day when I will rise up on resurrected legs, and the first thing I will do is to drop on grateful knees, She says, on the day I receive my new body in heaven, I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me stretch glorified muscles and dance on tiptoe. But there's something I plan to do that may please him more. I will kneel. To choose not to move in heaven will be my demonstration to him of heartfelt thanks for the grace he gave all those many years when my legs and hands were paralyzed. It will be my sacrifice of praise. Brothers and sisters, there's a day coming when our bodies wrecked and ruined by sin and death shall be made new. And we will arise in the resurrection in glorified bodies made ready to dwell in the presence of God, to stand, to kneel, to jump, to run, and to do all the things that hurt too much to do now. Well, we see, fourthly, that God will deliver us from social bondage. He says He will gather the outcast. He will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And as you read the Bible, you get the sense God has a special care for the outcast. One of my favorite pictures of the Gospel is found in 2 Samuel 9. David, David's closest companion for much of his life was uh, King Saul's son, Jonathan. And after Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, David was anointed and installed as king over Israel. Well, in 2 Samuel 9, David asked if there was any left from the house of Saul that he might show kindness to that person for Jonathan's sake. And Ziba, a servant of the house of Saul, told him of one of Jonathan's sons who was still alive, Mephibosheth. Say that, you know, five times fast. Now, Mephibosheth was crippled in his feet because of a long fall he experienced when he was 5 years old. Being crippled in both feet and the son of the man, the son of the son of the man who tried to kill David repeatedly, would have left him at kind of a disadvantage socially. He was an outcast. And yet in 2 Samuel 9 David seeks him out to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And listen to the exchange beginning in verse 5. Uh, King David sent and brought him from the house of Micae the son of Amiel at Lo Debar. And Mephibosheth said to Jonathan uh, Mephib- Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan son of Saul came to David, fell on his face and paid homage. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Well, David called to Ziba, and he gave all that belonged to Saul to Mephibosheth. And here's how the story concludes in verses 11 to 13. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So Mephibosheth always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Friends, this is what we see here in Zephaniah. God invites us, lame and outcast though we are, to eat at his table as sons and daughters. What good is left with which? with which God could bless you. What's left? What else is there that God could give to you? He promises to deliver you from all forms of bondage and bring you to His table to dine with Him. And so lastly, we see in the end of verse 19 and 20 this glory to be given. We've seen pardon, communion, deliverance, and finally, glory. He says, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. What a striking statement. We're, We're so often, I think, accustomed to talk of us giving glory to God, but I don't know that we often think about God giving glory to us. Now, these are two different kinds of giving of glory. When we give glory to God, we don't add anything to Him. We're not bestowing upon Him something He doesn't already have. Giving glory to God is a recognition and a delight in the glory that he that he has inherently. When God gives glory to us, he is bestowing upon us a weight and honor that is not ours by natural right. It's not something we have inherently, it's not something that we deserve. And yet God promises here to cause his people's fame to be renowned in all the earth. It's incredible. And so, what lessons can we learn from these verses or from the book of Zephaniah as a whole? Let me mention a couple and then we will close. First, God judges sin. We've seen it over and over in this book. God judges sin. He judges sin in the past, in the present, and He will in the future. There is a day fixed upon which God will judge the world through Jesus Christ. It is set and immovable, and we are barreling toward it at a speed we know not what. Now, we don't know when that day is coming. Likely not in the next ten seconds. But what we do know is that none of us are guaranteed the next ten seconds, individually. We don't know when our day of judgment is coming. It's appointed once for man to live, to die, and then comes Judgment. There's not a single one of us here that knows for certain that you're going to make it home this afternoon. It is not a guarantee. And even if you make it home, will you survive until morning? And so if if you're here having not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to do so. Right now, you live under the wrath of God. It hangs over your head like a guillotine. And any moment, it will come racing down upon you. Death comes for us all. Are you ready? I pray that if you're not, you would ready yourself. You would turn in faith to Jesus Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, look secondly at all that God has done for you. One of the main things we learn in this book is God judges sin, but we also learn that God has gone to great lengths to redeem His people. And look at it. Think of it. Rejoice, shout, and sing aloud. What mercy God has had upon you that you might be called His own. Are you you joyful? I don't mean are you just a happy or chipper person, but are you joyful? Do you have an unshakable delight in God that dwells deep within you? Even in the worst of circumstances, are you able to rejoice in the God of your salvation? Or are you thrown about with the wind? Remember, this command, this invitation to rejoice comes before a lot of judgment that Judah still had to experience. It would be a long time before any of them would see the blessings promised in Zephaniah 3. And so it may be a long time before we experience the fullness of these blessings as well. And so we must ask ourselves, are we able to rejoice even in the midst of suffering? What we see here is we see all that we've been delivered from. We see God's anger and His wrath as it's poured out upon Christ instead of us. But we don't just see what we're delivered from. We see it's not just the hell that we escape. We see the heaven into which we enter. Heaven is a place where God is. There God dwells in the midst of His people. He sings over them with great joy and together they rest in His love. There He will bring us those who have suffered long in bondage and He makes His name great in their midst and He glorifies Himself as He glorifies those whom He has been saved. What a marvelous word of hope. in The journey through this book In some sense, may not have been easy, but I pray that you found it worth it as we've considered this message of hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book, this short little book tucked away in the middle of the minor prophets, tucked away the middle of the Old Testament. Thank you, God, that you are in our midst presently, currently. You are with us by your Spirit. You dwell in us and with us, and you rejoice over us. And we ask that you would help us to more faithfully live in light of that reality.